0: Thank you for coming to the podcast. This is the Top Turtle MMA Podcast on CagesidePress.com. I'm David gubbie Greenland, joined as always by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. The UFC is back in the apex this weekend for UFC Sandhagen versus Song. We'll be breaking down that fight as well as two other of our favorite fights on the main card as part of fights, dogs, and parlays, where we'll also give you an underdog and a parlay that we think will make your wallet fat this week. Plus, I've got the interviews that you've come to know and love First, we're kicking off this episode by talking about Ria Agapova, who is fighting this weekend up against Jillian Robertson, and we're talking about Raul Rosas Jr. at the end of the episode, who is 17 years old and fighting on Contender Series. And we're going to get to all that great content for you, right now. The hosts are ready, the fighters are ready, listeners, make some noise if you are! For Top Turtle MMA with Shockwave and Gumby. Joining me today is Maria Agapova who fights Jillian Robertson at UFC Vegas 60. That fight is on September 17th. So first of all, Maria, thank you so much for taking the time this deep into training camp.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me on this interview. So happy.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I want to start by talking about the fact, you know, obviously you, you've been out for a little while. You are supposed to fight back in July, supposed to fight Yi Jing yeah. Liang. I, I know there were some rumors, or at least some out media outlets had reported that it was a knee injury. H- how bad was that, and how was the recovery for that?
1: You know, it's bad, and I still need surgery. So mm-hmm. after my fight, I will do the surgery but my life situation is very bad right now that's why i can't go to surgery before this fight because you know i work like bouncer right now at the club and no one gives a shit about me honestly so and after i get hurt and my sponsor didn't want to sign with me and i just get bouncer work and working with injury and i gotta go fight with injury And I believe in myself, I believe I can win still with this injury, still I believe I can win. And I wanna do this and just don't give people free stuff from myself no more. Because I get to this point because I help couple losers and I was thinking that I help being them successful, but no, it's not work like this. I become fucking loser because I trying to help fucking losers. And I, I just get broke and I have to work, like, all my camps like, bouncer. But, you know, these things still help me because I feel this regular person life. Like, you going on a regular job and earning the regular money. And, of course, I will appreciate my money that I get from UFC more this time because I realized, like, not a lot of people get money like me, like I do. I'm making really big money at UFC. And next time I have to invest them. I have to manage my money well. I shouldn't help people that I barely know who show up in my life when I'm good. When I have money, they showing up with some pity story. And I feel bad for them and give them my money. But I shouldn't do this. Because I see right now that I was helping people. And after I get hurt, after I get broke, no one gives a shit about me. And that's what hurts me. But it's life lesson. It's a hard life lesson, I learn it, and I still want to go to fight, I want to fight, get all my money, get the surgery, and after a while, again, I will come back already on next year. So it's going to be my last fight in this year, and I'm going to fight a long time, because injury was serious, injuries were serious, but I still go through good camp, I feel good, and I'm ready to fight and change my life because I'm tired of working a regular job. My job is actually good. I love my job. I work like balancer in FLs, that's club in Fort Lauderdale. And I love my job. But Of course, I want to enjoy life. Hmm. <laughs> I don't want to work. I already work in my life in Kazakhstan. and here too. And I want to just have my money with me and enjoy my life. You know, I think I deserve it and I just want to go to this fight to change my life again because I make so good money and I didn't invest it anywhere. I just spend on losers. I spend my money on losers and that's it. Like I end up in fuck situation, but this fight I want to go. I want to fight. I want to win and change my life because I don't want to live like this no more. I'm tired. I'm tired working for food. That's it.
0: Well, I'm I'm certainly sorry to hear that. Now, I I did want to ask you, you said the the knee situation is really bad. Has has it limited you all? in I don't want you to give away, obviously, too much about, you know, what that injury looks like and and how much surgery is going to be needed. But has it limited you in what you can prepare for or what you can do in in getting ready for Jillian Robertson? You
1: know, uh, even with this injury, I still was done wrestling, jiu-jitsu, sparring, so that's little bit affect me, but I still believe in my skills. I still believe in myself, and I still believe that I can win this fight. Because still, we've we done a good camp, and even with this injury, I still was sparring, wrestling, and I was doing good. I was sparring with very strong wrestlers and jiu guys, and even if in the beginning of camp, they all submit me, wrestle me, I can do anything. I was even like really upset. I was thinking it's never change. I'm going to be like this all the time. But one moment is just start, I start changing. I start escape from back, escape from submission. I never can escape. And I just get better because no matter on injury, I keep training. I keep getting stronger and I became a stronger. And next weekend, I want to just come and show what I get. And doesn't matter, this injury doesn't matter. I still can't fight and I still will fight.
0: Love to hear it. Love to hear it. Now, you you mentioned feeling like you needed to work on your wrestling and needing to work on your jiu-jitsu. Was that in preparation specifically for Jillian Robertson? Or was that something you came out of the Miraz fight feeling like you needed to add? What what sort of led to you you know, putting that emphasis on your training? Uh,
1: that's just, I think that Jillian she like more wrestler and grab that's her power like my striking I think my striking will be better than hers. and she like obviously she watched my fight with Maros and she sees that Maros was doing and I think she'll have the same strategy and this cage wrestling that was my weak spot because if in last fight I was close to the cage I was taken down and submit. That's me and my weak place is wrestling and jiu-jitsu. And of course, all this camp, I try to make it better. And also in stance, we're doing a lot of um, tricks. We'll try to keep fighting stance. Because of course, I want to keep fighting stance. I don't want to, like, jiu-jitsu with Jillian, her cuddle throat's very nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I want to stay in stance, but I know she'll try to take me down and that's what we're working on. Stay at the stance and not let her take me down. But if it happens, we're ready to to get much better. And I believe in my skills and in myself.
0: Well, we're looking forward to seeing all of that development. Now, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit off the topic of the fight. I- I'm a big fan of listening to people tell me the-, the origin of their fight nicknames. And, you know, I just noticed going into that last fight for you, for the first time ever, I saw a fight nickname next to your name. It said Maria the Demon Slayer Agapova. What sort of led you to start adding that to your name, and, and what did it come from?
1: Uh, you know, I, I don't even know how to explain it, but I think I want to change this nickname on Bouncer because <laughs> I'm not Demon Slayer no more. I'm <laughs> fucking Bouncer. I was worth like, Bouncer already two months. And
0: I'm fucking bouncer right now. I'm not demon Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we'll keep a lookout for that nickname change. Now, uh, I, also obviously, you know, like I have to ask about, you know, the, the current events, the stuff that's going on in the MMA world right now. You know, you, I, I know that your origins at American Top Team when you first started, when you first moved to Florida, and that was your first place to train. I know Amanda Nunes was kind of a big part of that. So I, I was wondering if you could kind of give us some of your thoughts on you know just how good she looked in her last fight and you know some people talking about her getting that trilogy fight with with uh Juliana Pena do
1: you think that fight's necessary or you think she just ought to move on with her life uh I think that was important fight for her because she lost and obviously she didn't like it because also she was champion she was favorite in this fight and I know that when you favorite and you lost Because if you favor it, people betting money on you. And if you lost, they all start hating you, write you evil messages and all this stuff. And I'm sure Amanda didn't like this, And she want to play back and show everyone that she's still champ. And she was working with my coach, Roger Krall, this camp, and he done to her very good strategy. Also, Roger, he's very, I think he's genius and he have very good strategy. Even for me, he always thinking, also he's workaholic and I like working with people like this because I'm workaholic too. I don't like people that they just want my percent of my fight and be on TV. I don't like coaches like this. I like coaches who dedicate themselves, like I dedicate myself to MMA and I like coaches to dedicate themselves to coaching. And Roger is it's this coach, that coach <laughs> who really workaholic and he really dedicate himself to his work. And I really liked working with him and that strategy that he made for Amanda, like he just was changing stance and Juliana wasn't expected because she wasn't expected. And all Roger drills, they was work on show, and I was super happy. I was at my bouncer work. I will see them on TV, and I'm like, oh, that's my coach.
0: <laughs> so I've got a couple of questions to follow up with that. So you're talking about, you know, Roger obviously having tricks up his sleeve and in, in special game plans that people aren't expecting. Are we going to see some of that out of you? Or are we going to see some things that maybe people don't expect come
1: Saturday? Yeah, of course. Roger always do something that shocks the opponent, that the opponent doesn't expect, you know. And Roger always uh, trying to make some smart strategy. That's why I really like him. I really like working with him because he's very smart.
0: I love that. Now, I also wanted to ask you, you said back there about being a favorite, having that pressure on you. And also dealing with kind of like the internet vitriol, the internet, you know, trolls getting mad when they've they bet on you and you didn't win. Is, is that something you've dealt with a lot in your career? Have you dealt with a lot of people sending you hate mail following a loss?
1: Uh like it's not just hate mail. They not send me hate mail. They just send me different evil messages on my Instagram. And you know, I just realized you bet money, you lost. You better go work, not bet money. You know, that's not my fault. I lost, too. I lost a lot of money, too. You know, i really sorry I lost. I feel bad, too. But you don't have to take this aggression on me if you lost your money on base. That's your problem, how much you bet. That's not my problem. I can control only my actions. I can control people' actions.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you entirely. It's too bad you've had to deal with that. Now, let's pull it all back to what we, we really came here for, which is the most exciting thing, and it's you fighting Jillian Robertson. Like you said, you're going to have a few tricks up your sleeves for it. You're going to be ready for that grappling game she comes with. Give us a prediction. How do you see this fight ending on September 17th?
1: I have no idea, but I have to win whatever happens because my life is fucked up right now. I have to have surgery soon. I don't have sponsors. I have no idea how it will work if I can't fucking walk around. You know, I better win this fight. That's what I think. I better
0: fucking win. Well, we are looking forward to seeing that baddest version of Maria Agapova once again, <laughs> fans. This is Maria Agapova who fights Jillian Robertson at UFC Vegas 60. That fight on September 17th. Maria, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Maria Agapova. And once again, I'm Daniel Freeland, joined now by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Dave, let's kick it off here. This past weekend, we broke down a pay-per-view that didn't happen. A completely different one happened, but I want to get your take on this piece of it. When all the dust settles, matchups got shuffled, fights went weird ways. Who came out of this? Let's say who came out of this the biggest winner and who came out of this the biggest loser. Uh, wow, what a great question. Um, and I,
2: uh, I'm caught off guard because I'm trying to just go in my mind. Okay. I'll go like this. I think both Nate and Hamzat came out big winners. Nate more so than Hamzat because Nate got to go out looking good, whereas I don't necessarily think that would have happened had he fought Hamzat. And I'm going under the premise that Hamzat makes the weight, et cetera, et cetera. So I think Nate becomes the biggest winner. I think there was a lot of love there. Uh, UFC fans love him, obviously. I think Nate even professed some love for the UFC. We haven't heard him say maybe ever. Um, Nate absolutely the biggest winner biggest loser is Tony uh, just because what was it his fifth or sixth loss in a row I mean tapping to that guillotine which I thought maybe he could have fought out of it It it's like it didn't even seem like a particularly powerful guillotine I don't know I just feel like Tony really came out of there worse for wear and same thing with Kevin Holland I mean you know Props to him for taking it. He actually did, like, as crazy as it sounds, I actually was kind of impressed with the first minute of takedown defense, but it just wasn't enough. And Hamzat also was looking tired. Gas tank for Hamzat. That's something we're always going to be talking about with him. So to really answer your question, for me it goes Nate, then Hamzat. I still think that performance and just the name being out there all week, he has a recognizable brand at this point. I don't even get the sense that Dana White was that mad at him. I don't think they're going to shuffle him down the card. So he's number two. And then Kevin Holland and Tony Ferguson gain nothing from what happened other than maybe an increased payday.
0: What about you? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Nate's the one who walks out of this, the nicest because originally he was basically going to walk out of the UFC on the heels of what I believe to be a brutal loss uh, and, and looking pretty damn bad against Kanza. I mean, like sure he could have won against Kanza and it would have been even that much bigger, but like this gave him a chance to go out on his own right um, you know, he gets the submission win over a guy who's, you know, notoriously hard to submit, uh, all, all of that kind of stuff. I, I definitely agree with you. He's the biggest winner. I'm torn about what to say about Kamzat because, like, you're right. On on one sense, his name was out there all day. And, you know, the old saying that no press is bad press. He, he definitely got a lot of press, right? He missed weight by a ton. He was in the news constantly. People were debating why he missed weight and who told him to stop missing. Like, he was constantly getting press. But at the end of the day, he was somebody who I felt like had had a real, to steal a, a word from the professional wrestling world, he, he had a real face about him, right, like people loved him, it, you know, he, he had corny catchphrases, and he was, he was like the good guy, this was like a heel turn for him, and I'm not sure it was a good one, you know what I mean, like he's flipping up people off on the weigh-in scales uh, during the ceremonial weigh-ins, he's you know, uh, he, whatever you want to say about that beginning of the fight, whether he faked a glove touch or not, he certainly shot a takedown while Kevin Holland thought he was shooting a, a glove touch, which is, you know, a bad look in and of itself. He, his takedown offense did look great against Kevin Holland for that first minute, as you pointed out. Like, so yes, he got a ton of press, but I'm not sure how bad it was for him at the end of the day. So I I'd, I'd say flip a coin. I don't know if he's good or bad. But I totally agree with you about Tony Ferguson. I was beating the drum of, you know, maybe we're writing him off too soon. You know, what's a loss to Justin Gage here? What's a loss to Michael Chandler? He looks fat now, right? Because not only did he tap to something I didn't think he would have to tap to, the the takedown was sloppy. He was getting beat up on the feet anyway. I, I mean, like, it's, it's time to kind of turn a page on Tony Ferguson and either run him against, you know, the bottoms of the division or – I mean, like, really think about not fighting in the UFC anymore. So yeah, I, I kind of agree with your assessment, but I just don't know what to do with Kamzat. Um, wait. So I there's so many things to say.
2: I mean, we won't belabor the point too much, but I have something to throw at you. Um, which one do I want to do first? All right, let's do. All right, let's let's button up Kamzat, and then I want to end on Tony. With Comzat, I know what you're saying. I do believe though the attention it got. I think it was just the 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 embedded. After the missed weight was the most watched embedded of all time. I'm going to throw something at you. Just, I know I'm catching you blind. Social media followers, which we know is like the number one currency right now. Let's just look at welterweight, right? How many social media followers do you think the champ, the champ has Leon Edwards? Uh, Instagram, Instagram only. Instagram Instagram only only, probably
0: 650,000.
2: Wow, you are very impressive at this. He has 690,000. Look he, at that! He uh, <laughs> Kamar <laughs> Usman, the longtime champ. How many Instagram followers do you think he has? A mil. He has 3 million. I oh, think okay. We That's... know why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah the okay. Rock
2: and everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or, oh, I'm sorry, not The Rock. Uh, I just meant being the champ. Now, I might have just given this away. How many does Jorge Masvidal have?
0: Oh, like 5 million.
2: He has 3 million, too.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So,
2: okay. Leon Edwards and Usman, three million uh, – or, sorry, Usman and Jorge Masvidal, three million. How many do you
0: think Kamzat has? Kamzat – so, he, he, obviously, if you're bringing up this question, he's got to be having <laughs> – he, he's got to be having way more, right? Like, he, he can't have – is its is it seven million? It's $4 million. Okay. I the point being that
2: he is more than the longtime champ Jorge Masvidal, who's in the most viral UFC clip of all time with a three-second head kick knockout or knee knockout, and he was on you know, the rocks handing him the BMF belt at MSG. So my point being, Kamzat has really just, you know, the no strikes allowed. I mean, the UFC marketing machine is behind him. I, I think it would have, he'd have to miss weight egregiously again. And mess up a main event I think this kind of all just worked out for everyone in a twisted
0: way yeah I mean um, we want it with better matchups I'm definitely gonna say that but I I don't know like and, and I guess maybe this is what I mean by him maybe not being the biggest winner too does him beating Kevin Holland with like a fake glove touch and a rear naked choke in two minutes do anywhere near what grounded pounding out Nate Diaz would have done no, but he was
2: Nate Diaz adjacent anyway. That's, so like, I mean, that's all, true. I guess
0: he gets some love.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, okay, uh, I'm with you. Let's. The book is out on where Kamzat goes. And I don't, honestly, Kamzat, I'm getting crazy Ronda Rousey, Brock Lesnar vibes from Kamzat. I think if you, you were watching these very impressive wins, each time he goes out there, there are geniuses out there. You know, taking their notes, figuring it out. If you can survive on this man, much like Gilbert Burns did late into the third round, if you can, you know, put up adequate takedown defense. This is like the Khabib argument all over again, but I think it's even worse. Comes out really gases himself. He was tired in that first minute of the Kevin Holland fight.
0: Yeah, and we've so, seen. We've also seen people stuff his takedowns. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure what time this, uh, this episode will go live on Tuesday, but Tuesday night Contender Series has a guy by the name of Ikram Aliya who fought him over in Russia, stuffed like all four of his takedown attempts. He went like, 0 of four. Now Kamzat winds up knocking him out at the end of the day, but like he, he can be stuffed is the, is the point is like, he's not, you know, Habib never really was like stuffed and forced to strike. Like that is already happened to Kamzat.
2: Um, yeah, that's something for us to keep an eye on and we're going to bring that up the next time he fights. Okay, here's the one thing I just want to end on. And this might be controversial for me to say, but I have an open mind to it. At the end of the night on Saturday, there was a ton of talk of could it be the legend Nate Diaz's last fight, yada yada makes sense. We knew that was going to be the narrative going into tons of intrigue. Nate is so fully cemented as, you know, say what you will about his actual fighting resume Big moments, a name, a brand, someone people love. I also noticed a lot of people were talking about, and I give Tony a ton of respect for what he did. He put together an 11-fight win streak. There was a lot of these two legends, i.e. grouping Tony in the legend bracket. Do you consider Tony Ferguson a
0: legend? I I wouldn't, uh, not in like the sense that we talk about legends of sport, Right. When we talk about Legends of Sport, we're talking about the guys who are really, really, really great. Right. Like we talk about, you know, Babe Ruth and you'll talk about Mike Trout and you'll talk about, you know, just to steal some names from baseball. You talk about the Mickey Mantles and the, the Roger Marises even and like people like that who who either achieved some sort of record or were amazing for a long period of time. The thing I see Tony Ferguson as is a guy who had, like, a crazy good couple of seasons, and we will never forget that dude. You know, like, um, and, and if you're not a baseball fan, I'm sorry I'm using baseball metaphors. I see him as a Tim Lincecum, a guy who had, like, an absolutely ridiculous two or three seasons, and we're going to always remember those two or three seasons. He will not be a guy who you have to be like, hey, do you remember, people will remember him, But I don't know necessarily that that qualifies him as a legend to me. How about you? Well, yeah, I think that's a great analogy because guess what? Tim Lincecum's
2: not going to the Baseball Hall of Fame, right? He didn't do it for long enough. I would would say not, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that's kind of where I feel with Tony. I I was really taken by that because while he put together the 11-fight win streak, and all props to him, that was amazing. He just, you know, the interim title fight against a post- um staff infection Kevin Lee as he gassed out in the second round.
0: That he was losing losing you know, that fight.
2: That he was losing that fight. He never he never actually fought for a real title. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, he never fought for a real title, just the interim. And who's like his biggest win? RDA in the back half of his career, you know, like post title loss RDA, who would kinda win two, lose one, win two, lose two, that kind of thing. I just don't know. I just, I do not consider Tony a legend. And I don't know if like that would get me beat up on the streets because UFC fans really were just waxing poetic on social media. And same with the UFC broadcast, this legend, Tony Ferguson, I'm like, hey, he's not to me. He wouldn't be in my hall of fame.
0: But but, like, but but you have to also consider sometimes what the UFC talks about being a legend too, because and again, no offense to the the people I'm about to name. But they say the same shit about, like, Jim Miller or Joe Lozon. And, like, not that Jim Miller and Joe Lozon aren't great fighters and not that I won't always remember those guys, but in 10 years when we have new fans that arrive, say you have a new fan who arrives three years from now, those guys are well-retired, five years from now, they're not going to, even if they're, they're like, UFC historian types, they're not going to go back and, like, look up Joe Lozon fights and then be well-versed in the Joe Lozon you know scheme of things because at the end of the day while he's memorable for us he's not memorable for like that longevity and those people are a step below tony ferguson and they're still calling him legends i the thing now the thing where i yeah i agree with you that it's so interesting actually when you bring
2: up that comparison because tony had a better peak than joe lozon without a fucking shadow of a doubt i can actually get behind a joe lozon legend call. Because he's done it for so long, and also he has the benefit of being on an early season of tough, that huge surprise win, when there weren't a lot of those types of underdog unknown wins um, against Jens Pulver. To me, he sort of, but anything in 2005 to 2010 is, as like the sport exploded, you kind of get those extra props. So for me, just because of when he fought and how long he's fought, for me, he is borderline legend. Tony better fighter but i just don't have those signature moments for him
0: yeah and and i think that that probably you know you probably encapsulated it all right there and what what makes up a legend in the uh in the mma world is like it's like it a lot of it has to do with timing and a lot of it has to do with like what you've done as a brand whereas like i guess that's where my baseball analogy falls apart is that like when we talk about legends of baseball, they are the best fighters or the best baseball players rather. Right. And like, when we talk about legends for MMA, I'm not sure necessarily that that's as important as being like memorable and like that people won't forget you. And and even if you were way worse, like in in some ways that that's less important in the world of fighting, at least Uh, you're so
2: right. Because listen, I gladly call Nate Diaz a legend.
0: Nate Diaz
2: is not, I mean, if you look at Nate Diaz's resume, again, same thing. I mean, he got, uh, he lost to Benson Henderson in that title fight. Uh, When was his next title fight? Oh, the BMS belt. (laughs) I'm not going to count that. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, again, for me, Nate Diaz, he's in that same, uh, he came up on tough five, historical season for the lightweights. That's when like the lightweight roster really exploded and got blown out and He's been doing it for 17 fucking years in the UFC. So that's where his legendary status comes in. Again, Actually, Tony's peak was probably better than Nate's peak when you think about it. Oh, way better. Nate's, way better. Way better. Way better. Way better. The only thing that Nate's peak really has is the massive Conor win, which was built more on just the entertainment of these two personalities and not necessarily the fact that, like, you know they did it at 170. Connor's not actually a 170er, so I can't even give him huge credit for that. As if you're making a case for like his 155 pound resume, which is where he fought the majority of his career. So, yeah, it, it's just uh, it's interesting. You know, I think it's something we should throw on the social medias. Like, who's more of a legend, Tony or Joe Lozon? For me, it's Joe Lozon. Um, who's more of a legend, Tony or Nate? A thousand
0: percent Nate. But again,
2: Tony had better peaks
0: than both those guys. Yeah. It's a weird one. It's weird when you consider that that's why it works for for MMA.
2: Yeah, Um, very pro wrestling, Carney. All right, let's get on to uh, what brought us here. And that's fights, dogs and parlays, our favorite segment on the show. And we're breaking it down this week for UFC Vegas 60. But Gumby, before we get into it, I wonder, does any company sponsor
0: this edition of Fight Dogs and Parlays? Absolutely. Fight Dogs and Parlays is brought to you by Maroon Social. M-A-R-U-N-E. Maroon Social is the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiast. Whether you do kickboxing, judo, sambo, jiu-jitsu, or any other martial art, you can use Maroon Social to log your training sessions, tag your training partners, log competitions, weigh-ins, and so much more. Ditch that dirty jiu-jitsu journal and get yourself Maroon Social wherever it is you download apps. All right,
2: let's start with a banger of a main event at 135. Corey Sanhagen is a minus 195 favorite to Song Yadong at plus 165. Very interesting point of uh, inflection, an inflection point, I guess we'll say, for Corey Sanhagen. This man KO'd the legend Frankie Edgar, Frankie Edgar's first KO loss back in February of 2021. Felt like the world was his oyster did it for Corey Sanhagen. And then he ran into TJ Dillashaw and Piotr Jan. Now, granted, he took a split decision loss to TJ Dillashaw. Could have gone either way. Very close fight. But Dillashaw got the nod. And then Piotr Jan beat him with a unanimous decision. So Sanhagen does not want to lose three in a row, even though two of those losses would come to the very tippy top of the division. And Song Yudong is a man who's on a three-fight win streak. Since losing to Kyler Phillips back at UFC 259 in March of 2021, He's fought three times in the last year and a half, and he's 3 and 0 in that time. Split decision win over Casey Kenny, got a TKO over Julio Arce, and a KO over Marlon Moraes. That was back in March of this year. So Song Yudong riding high,
0: but still the dog here at plus 165. Who you got? I'm all over Corey Sanhagen in this spot. Look, I, I like Song Yudong, but at the end of the day, you know, you mentioned uh, only a split decision win over Casey Kenny, a loss to Kyler Phillips. Those are two guys who I think have, like, wrestling that they can threaten him with, and it ultimately just kind of, like, threw him completely off of his game. I think Corey Sanhagen has that in him, too, should he want to do that. But even if he doesn't and he chooses to stand and bang with, with Song Yudong, he's done that. He's stood and banged with Piotr Jan and TJ Dillashaw and been no worse for the wear at the end of the day. So if if I feel like Piotr Jan and... and T.J. Dillashaw aren't going to take the man out. I don't think Song Dong is either. He's got good distance management. He works well in the clinch. He, he strikes well from distance. He's going to be, you know, three or four inches longer than Song Dong in all of these cases. So, like, I, I just have to imagine Corey Sanhagen puts together a better game plan. I also will say I like him better in a five-round fight than I like Song Dong, who I've never seen in a five-round fight. Um, You know, because he even looked a little tired towards the end of that Kyler Phillips fight. I think Corey Sanhagen is just going to outwork him.
2: Yeah. The Sanhagen length has been a problem for everyone who's had to deal with him, Other than Piotr Jan Piotr Jan did such a good job managing the distance there. And I'm sure everyone's going to look at that fight as the, you know, paradigm of how you approach Corey Sanhagen, but it's easier said than done. And Piotr Jan, very special fighter when it comes to taking the right angles and, and all that. So I agree with you. I got Sanhagen as well. Let's move then to Gregory Rodriguez, a minus 120 favorite, to Chidi Njoku-A, Njokuani, a plus 100. Our boy Chidi is 3-0 and since debuting in the UFC, especially if you count Dana White's contender series, which I do. It's a pro fight win. Uh, he debuted with a TKO there, then came back with two KOs um, at UFC fight night in may and ufc fight night in february so again three and oh is our boy chidi and just a plus 100 but you take a look at gregory rodriguez who is the favorite here he's coming off a big ko win over julian marquez lost to armin petrosian before that and beat jung Young park via ko before that all told he's three and one in the ufc and a slight favorite here who you taking?
0: I'm taking Chidi and Uh I, I really do like RoboCop. I love Gregory Rodriguez. I think he's got a lot of fun grappling that works. But at the end of the day, he's really fallen in love with his striking. And I think that's his undoing here. Because Chidi Njikwani, going to be the much bigger guy, going to be the much longer guy, and going to be the much more dangerous guy on the feet. Not that Rodriguez isn't really dangerous with his hands. Uh, you know, obviously we saw him do that to Jung Young Park, but... Uh, Chidi has just got a different level of striking. He's a guy with a good Muay Thai background. He's a guy with good kicks and good hands. We've seen him starch people in a very short period of time. Uh, I've liked him since back when he was with Bellator and in fighting on the regional scene. This is a guy with crazy amounts of experience on his record. I think Chidi and Jaquani gets him out of there with a knockout.
2: Boom. That's a big call. Let's go then to Javed Basharat, a minus 180. To Tony Gravely, a plus 155. Basharat is 2-0 and in the UFC, debuted on Contender Series, coming off a win over Travin Jones. Uh, that was back in March of this year. Tony Gravely, uh, he is on a two-fight win streak himself, wins over Simon Oliveira and Johnny Munoz Jr. That was a KO over Johnny Munoz back in June. Lost to Nate Maness back, back last September um all told in the ufc he is
0: five and two who you got I, i'm gonna go with javeed basharat here uh my my big concern is if you look at the two guys who have beat tony gravely both of them great wrestling bases now nate manis didn't get a chance to do a lot of that wrestling brett johns did brett johns absolutely took him down and manhandled him on the ground and while i like tony gravely i think he's got some good wrestling and very clearly he's got power in those hands I think at the end of the day, Basharat is just going to get to that ground game too quickly. And even if he doesn't force him to the ground and he doesn't get Tony Gravely down and he doesn't work Tony Gravely over on the mat, I think he's just going to tire him out to the point where he can't continue. Because that's the thing about Tony Gravely, not the greatest gas tank. It cost him in the Nate Manis fight. I think it cost him here in the Basharat fight.
2: Our underdog of the week is Rodrigo Nascimento, a plus 155 over Tanner Bowser. Let's hear it. So I really like
0: Tanner Boser, I, and I know I'm, I'm saying that about just about everybody I'm picking against, but I do think that he's kind of in a bad place here against Rodrigo Nascimento. Nascimento is a big, long heavyweight. I think people forget how long he is. Despite the fact that he's only six foot 2 he's got an 80-inch reach, which is like John Jones-esque in his reach. You don't see a lot of heavyweights with a build like that, because it's not even that he's particularly tall. He's just really, really, really long. And you take Tanner Boser, who's exactly the same thing. He's six foot two, but he's only got a 75 inch reach which means he's going to be giving up like five inches to a guy who throws kind of long hooks and did a really good job against alan baudot at like kind of picking his spots uh, we, we've seen you know tanner Bowser kind of not be able to deal with somebody who can pick him apart you know andre Orlovsky picked him apart really well and picked up a unanimous decision i think rodrigo Nascimento not only could run that game plan i think if tanner Bowser gets a little bit overzealous i think you could see him shoot the takedown here and And get some work done on the mat, too, because we've seen him sub Dante Mays. We've seen him sub uh, Michael Mocerlac in in contender series. I think Nazimento just has too many ways to win here to overlook him at plus 155.
2: Our parlay to play is Joe Pfeiffer, a minus 390, and Andre Feely, a minus 130. Put them together, get your plus 122 odds. Break it down.
0: Yeah, so first of all, Joe Pfeiffer here is in a setup fight. Uh, there, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They are setting him up because they like him. He had a phenomenal knockout win on the contender series. They give him his very first fight against Alan Amandowski, a guy who's 0-3 in the UFC, and has looked, let's be honest, like absolute trash. So, at the end of the day, yeah, of course, I'm loving Joe Piper here. He's going to take him down. He's going to get the finish in the first minute. Sign me up for some Joe Piper here. Here's the reason I don't like Bill Algio against Andre Feely. Bill Algio has chronic trouble defending takedowns. Despite the fact that he's won some unanimous decisions in fights he's been taken down, this dude gets taken down a ton. Listen to his numbers since coming to the UFC. Five times, Ricardo Lamos took him down. Four times, Spike Carlisle took him down. Eight times, Ricardo Hamos took him down. Twice for Joe Anderson-Britu and once for Herbert Burns. This dude is getting taken down all the time in his fights. And Andre Feely is a guy who, when he relies on his wrestling is quite good right like he beat charles Jordan by just out wrestling him he nearly out wrestled sadiq yusuf like this is a guy who when he leans on his wrestling is phenomenal he has to know he has the wrestling advantage here so i'm going to take feely and piper together and get that plus 122
2: boom that does it for this edition of fights dogs and parlays hopefully we did you right and didn't play you dirty let us know about it on our social media at Top Turtle MMA, and all the places you'd expect other than Facebook. We don't mess with Facebook.
0: All right, Gumby, this show is moving along, though. Where do we go next? Well, I'm going to transition now to my interview with Raul Rosas Jr. Raul Rosas Jr. is fighting on week nine of the Contender Series at, get this, 17 years old. That's right. The man is 17 years old. He's going to be fighting on Contender Series, and we're going to talk about it right now. All right, and joining me today is Raul Rosas Jr., who fights Mando Gutierrez at Dataway Contender Series. That's week nine on September 20th. So, Raul, I wanted to start here. You're obviously the youngest guy in Dataway Contender Series history, only 17 years old, getting your chance. I have to ask, how long has this been your dream to, to do this that some people never get to do? Um, This has been my dream
3: since I was, like, well, since I was little, I've always wanted to be a UFC champion, but to be honest, if I think about it, like, if I just think about it in the fact, like, oh, I want to become a UFC champion, uh, it's a little bit more easy for me because I could be like, I could wait till I'm 25 and become a UFC champion or 26, 26. like, I got a lot of time because I'm already 17 years old with this type of level, so... I wanted to. When I was 13, I realized the level that I had already, and that I, I uh, were like the type of fighter that I could become. So I knew that I could become the youngest UFC champion. So it's like a, a little challenge for me, and I know it's not gonna be easy, but I know I have what it takes. And like I admire, I admire uh, John Jones. Uh, he, he he has the right now for becoming the youngest UFC champion, but. I know it wasn't easy for him. You, you you see the fighters that he had to fight, Shogun Rua and everybody to get to that title. Leono Machida and a lot of big names, but I know I have what it takes to beat that record, so that's what I'm going to do.
0: I love it, and I was going to ask you about that too, but I, I got to go back to what you just said there. So at 13, you found that you like felt like you had the skills. You felt like it was starting to really come into focus, but how early was, like, being an mma fighter and punching people in the face how early was that part of what you want to do are we talking like you were doing that at four or five years old are we talking like seven or eight how old was were you thinking about doing that for a profession
3: yeah um it's actually crazy like you see a lot of uh, young fighters or just a lot of people like they start with pure wrestling pure boxing pure jiu-jitsu and like at the end of the day, they bring it to the table and they start their their MMA career like already with the well-based martial arts. But I actually started like fully MMA since I was little. Since I was like four or five, I was already doing boxing and jiu-jitsu and karate because I knew I was gonna be an MMA fighter. So like even my jiu-jitsu has always been to like be on top, wrestle, and like never. I, I've never pulled gun in my life because. I knew I was going to be an MMA fighter, not a grappler. So, like, I've always put it all together for my MMA game because uh, I've always known that my my dad – because my dad used to do MMA. He was actually a pro fighter also. But – so we saw him fight one time, and I realized that that's what I really wanted to do when I was, like, five. So I was training since I was four, but when I was five, I started taking it more seriously. And I've been training, like, twice or three times a day since I was little – for fun and because I liked it. So I was being like dedicated and being well-rounded without even knowing that now I'm at this level and I'm sitting right here talking to you.
0: That I mean, that that's awesome to hear now. So obviously your dad being a fighter himself was a big part of that culture for you, right? Was a big part of the fact that, you know, it was normal at four or five years old, but I got to ask, how, how did your mom take that? Did, did did your mom love the idea of her, her four-year-old boy, throwing fisticuffs?
3: Yeah, uh, my mom actually loved that idea, too, and my, my because my, me and my brother did it, started doing it, but we would also do soccer. Uh, we, we were soccer players, and we were MMA fighters, so we were going back and forth, and um, but one time, it got to a point when I was, like, seven years old, eight, that my dad was like, okay, look, I'm not going to force y'all to do anything. Y'all can do whatever y'all want, but I just want y'all to be the best at it, whether it's the doctor, whether it's whatever y'all want to do, just be the best at it. So, like, in this position, we had to choose between soccer or MMA so we could become the best at it. Like, if I if I wasn't sitting here talking to you right now, I would probably be, like, playing soccer and trying to break records in the soccer world. But we decided to go with MMA, and now we're here. Uh, and my mom always supported it. My dad always supported it. They're always in, the, in our Training sessions, watching us train, and they just support it. I love
0: it. I love it. Now, also, you know, like you said, you got to watch your dad fight, so that's a big part of it. But I could tell by your answer about John Jones earlier on, you're a historian. You're a guy who's watched a ton of fights. And I mean, John Jones was winning the title when you were just a little tiny kid. So I have to imagine, you know, UFC and MMA in general was on TV at your house. Were you watching that from a young age? Were you a fan at the young age?
3: Yeah, since I since I was little, I was watching. That, that's what really also caught my caught my attention that I wanted to be one of, part of those fighters because my dad would turn on the TV and put on the UFC, and then he, he would like we would sit with him and watch it, and then he would be like, "Hey, look, I want you to fight like that guy. I want you to fight like that guy, or stuff like that." And then uh, I remember him specifically. We were watching John Jones. I didn't know who John Jones was, but we were watching one of his fights because he was fighting. And my dad was like, hey, look, I want you to be like him. You see, he's well-rounded. He was like, he can go striking. He can go to the ground, clinch. He, he can wrestle. He can do anything. I don't want you to be like the, top, uh, the other fighters that can just box. They can just grapple. They can just wrestle. I want you to be like John Jones that can do anything. So, so that really caught my attention. And I realized why he was the best in the world. Because if you think about it, he can do anything. He can wrestle. He can strike. He can grapple. So that's what really also made me become a well-rounded fighter. I want, I want to be able to do everything.
0: I love that. I love that. Now was, was there any other fighter that like really stuck out and was formative for you? Obviously John Jones being the youngest champ, being the guy with the record, being, you know, a well-rounded person. Some might say the greatest of all time. That makes a lot of sense, but was there anybody else who kind of like helped guide your style?
3: Uh, GSP also, like just his jab, his, he, he kept the basics and like, he would, like, act like he was going to strike or he would go for the takedown. Like, he would mix it up pretty well, too. So that's the type of fighters that I really would like to watch because, uh, like, me, when I was little, I used to think about it like a boxing match. Like, uh, I I used to think, like, oh, I just want to go in there and box because, like, I'm going to be honest, like, my dad would say that the ground was for pushies, but (laughs) we 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 knew ground. But in case we got taken down, we knew how to, like, what to do in the ground but we wouldn't use it we had it like in our toolbox but we wouldn't use it we would just go in there and and, like boss but I started seeing like GSP and and John Jones and I was like I like these fighters because it's not a kickboxing match it's not a boxing match it's not a grappling match it's MMA fight so you got to be able to like mix it up pretty well so that's the type of fighters that I like watching I also like watching like Guys that are pretty good at what they do, like Khabib was pretty good at wrestling, so I, I like to get from him. And one of my my favorite fighters of time is Tony Ferguson, though. Tony Ferguson just because of the way he fights, I don't know, I just like how he's creative and everything, so I like Tony Ferguson.
0: I love it. I love it. Now I, I want to get back to talking about you too, because obviously, you know, you, you've got a lot of confidence in yourself. You're a guy who, who's put a lot of time into this craft, but but at just 17. You're, you're getting a chance, like I said, that, that some people never get in their whole life. Are, are, were you a little surprised when the phone call came that this is what was going to happen next for you at only 17? Did you think you had to put in more time, or were, were you kind of expecting this call? Uh,
3: I was already expecting the call, so I wasn't surprised when it came because I sat down and talked to my manager, Jason Howes, and we were talking, and uh, I was telling him that I wanted to become the youngest UFC champion since the day that he signed me. So we were talking about it, and I, I, I either told them, like, hey, I want to be in this show of contender series, like, of this season, or I told them, like, how many fights do they want, and I'll give them. Like, if they wanted me to go 10-0, 11-0 by the end of the year, I was gonna go, I was down to go 11-0 and by the end of the year so I could go straight into the UFC. So, like, if I wasn't fighting in contenders right now, I would be fighting in other promotions like back-to-back. I would be fighting September, October, November, December in order to get the numbers that they wanted and go straight to the UFC. So I knew that this year my opportunity would come. So I just stayed ready, and I I, I was already expecting it.
0: I love that. I love that so much. So let, let's talk about the fight itself because, you know, you're clearly a student of the game. You've probably watched Mando Gutierrez by now. He's a guy who's got a ton of submission finishes. You know, you obviously pride yourself in being well-rounded, and you've got plenty of submissions in your own right. How do you see yourself matching up with him? What do you see his biggest sort of traits being that could possibly give you trouble?
3: Um, I don't think he gives me trouble anywhere, not to be cocky or nothing, but like I said, he's like I watch him, and uh, he's a good fighter, but I'm just going to show that there's levels, like, Everything that he does is ten times better and I'm i I'm not just saying this to say it but I just know what I got and it's just the truth and it's gonna show on September twenty. Like don't get me wrong, he's he's a good fighter, he's a great fighter, but like it's he's just not on my level, like whatever he does, like I, I can out I'll grapple him, I can go out wrestle him, I can go out strike him, you know. So I'm just gonna go in there and fully dominate, take over and show everybody that I belong here and but without being said, it doesn't mean that Mando Gutierrez sucks or that he's a champ, but that day, he, I'm i to make him look like one because they're just level two.
0: I love it. I love it. Now, I usually like to get a prediction out of fighters before I let them go. H- how do you see this one ending on, on September 20th?
3: I see it going a, a, a few different ways. Either I'm just going to go in there and I'm going to smash him and I'm going to take it first round finish by rear naked choke or submission or knockout or I'm ready to go three rounds and just break them. Just whatever, whatever, however the fight plays out, I'm just going to fully dominate. I'm I'm going to try to finish the fight every second of the fight, and also I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out there and put on a show and have fun, you know, just enjoy this moment, and I've been working a lot for this moment. At the end of the day, this is my dream, and no one's going to take it away from me, so I'm just going to go in there and do my best and have fun and come out with that contract.
0: Well, we absolutely can't wait to see it. Once again, fans, this has been Raul Rosas Jr. who fights Mando Gutierrez on Data White Contender Series Week 9 that fights September 20th. Raul, thank you so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, brother. And that's going to do it for another episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in each and every week. We could not do what we do without you guys. We also want to thank our sponsors, Maroon Social. And remember that you can check us out on Twitter at Top Turtle MMA in all locations. Until next week, I'm David Gubby-Freeland. He's Shockwave Dave Tremonte. And we will catch you then.